This summer, Rachel and I are taking a bit of a breather. So our upcoming episodes... 44 through 46... Mm -hmm, ...will be remixes of popular two-part interviews from our first season now merged and re-edited into one for your listening pleasure. And then we'll be back in September... ...with new interesting conversations... ...with interesting people. Wind and Tide... Hello and welcome to Family 360. A podcast exploring all the ways we are family to each other. Each episode welcomes conversations with specialists, artists, and storytellers. I'm Rachel Cram, founding director of Wind and Tide Educational Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios. And together, we're the hosts of Family 360. Find us on our website, family360podcast.com. Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram for wise words from our fabulous guests. And now for this week's episode. This week, we're with Ted Levitt, an author, an addiction counselor, a youth and family therapist, and a specialist in ADHD. Attention, deficit, and hyperactivity disorder. Yeah. His work is built upon years of study, practice, and personal experience. Diagnosed with ADHD in his 30s, Ted came to see himself and his clients through new eyes. Mm -hmm. In his work with both clients and medical professionals, he highlights the challenge of distinguishing between problem behaviors and mental health problems. He's a very kind, compassionate, and knowledgeable counselor. Mm. I think because he relies both from years of study and his own experience as a problem child. So let's start the conversation. Welcome to, to Family, Family 360. 360. Ted, thank you so much for being in the studio today. Glad to be here. I'm so interested for this conversation, partly because I think I'm going to learn a lot as well. In preparation for this interview, I listened to your TEDx talk, which is fabulous. Thank you. And I actually have a lot of ADHD that runs through my family as well. So oh, I'm here as a learner. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> welcome to the club. Yeah. It's a beautiful club. Yes, it is. I'm going to start today with a question that we typically open with in our interviews. Aristotle stated, give me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. So Ted, mm. is there a story or an experience from your childhood that has shaped the man that you are today? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many stories, mm -hmm. right? I, I'm a storyteller, mm -hmm. and so I remember all sorts of things. But it's interesting that the quote uh, talks about the age of seven because that's the story that rises to the top for me. I was probably oh, seven or eight. I think it was in grade two. There was this little girl that moved into our school, and she was just odd. I mean, as a seven-year-old, you don't, you can't articulate, but she would just kind of sit a lot of the time staring, uh, either staring at you, through you, at nothing. She sort of had her mouth hanging open. She had a runny nose a lot of the time. And uh, I don't know, I was drawn to her like she looks like she needs a friend. Hmm. So I said to my mom, I'm going to try and be a friend to this girl. So I tried really hard. I, I talked to her. I tried to include her and ask her questions. And I, I got nothing. And I remember one time seeing her in town with her dad, and I just got this weird vibe. And I just had this feeling like something not good was happening there. And then they moved, and I never saw or heard from her again. And I always felt kind of haunted by that, mm. especially as I got older and learned about the world and things that happen in the world. And I thought, man, that poor little girl was all by herself and nobody was helping her. And I don't know if she ever did get help. I don't know if she was, you know, had some developmental difficulties. I'm sure there was some trauma going on there. So that's kind of me. I was always the person to notice that person mm -hmm. in the room. I would say that's probably the one that stands out the most for, mm -hmm. for me. Thanks for describing that. It's amazing how early compassion or empathy manifests itself in right that it led you to this career. Exactly. Now, you started off as an addiction counselor, is yeah. that correct? That yeah. was your first career yeah. in the area of counseling? Yeah. Were there any big takeaways? I know you shifted, and we'll get into that. Were there any experiences or understandings that you gained through that particular form of counseling? Oh, yeah, like so many, so mm -hmm. many. It was such a, a good place to learn on the job. One that served me really well over the years has been to not take lying personally. Uh, when people lying from the client, lying from the client, 
or your child or whoever. Mm-hmm. So I was working as the intake worker. I was, I ran the group for the guys in their first two weeks. And a guy came to me one evening and he said, oh, my grandma's dying. She's in the hospital. She was my caregiver growing up. I would just feel terrible if she died without me having a chance to say goodbye to her. So I need to discharge from the program early and go in to see her. And I said, well, okay, that sounds like a legit reason to do it. So we bought him a bus ticket and took him down to the bus stop and dropped him off. When I got back to the treatment center, a couple of clients pulled me aside and they said, no, his grandma's not dying. He wants to use drugs. Hmm. And I had always hated being lied to, which is ironic given how much I lied to other people as a kid. Um, so I was like, what? I was ready to get in the van, drive back down there, take the ticket back. How dare you take advantage of my, my sympathy? And then I realized... He didn't pick that story because he thought I was stupid enough to believe it, which was always a trigger for me, people thinking that I was dumb. I just realized, okay, people lie because that's what they know how to do. Their brain has told them that is your best strategy in this scenario, so let's do it. And I learned to not take it personally. And sometimes when they knew that I knew that they were lying but didn't really care that they were lying, they would feel safe enough to like open up a bit more. Hmm. They would then tell me the truth hmm. because often, you know, you say to kids, oh, if you do the thing that you shouldn't do, that's one thing. But if you lie about it, that's when I'm going to be mad. But if I'm not even mad, then it becomes very safe to tell you the truth. Well, I think what you're describing is the complexity mm-hmm. of people. And I think related to this In your work, you've been looking into the difference between problem behaviors and mental health problems. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as you reflect on stories like this, what are you discovering about that difference or lack of difference? Well, that is a source of frustration for me, I would say. uh, Sitting in meetings with people who, in my opinion, ought to know better, who just cannot stop themselves from delineating mental health problems from behavior problems. Uh, you know, are you we, talking about therapists or are you talking about clients here? Therapists. Okay. Therapists, psychiatrists, uh, mental health professionals, people mm-hmm. whose job it is to know the difference, saying we don't have enough you know, beds in the, the child and adolescent psych unit because we have all these behavior kids coming in. And me saying, well, behavior problems are mental health problems. And then they say, yeah, I know, but 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 when they're not, I said, but they are always. Well, this comes back to teachers in schools too, right? There's right. a lot of conversations right now about all the behavior problems that are in right. schools. And I think this reflects directly on that conversation as Definitely. well. And your attitude towards that very much affects how you relate to that individual Absolutely, person. Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of the presentations that I do start with, this slide that says EEFB on it. EEFB, that's an acronym? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's an event that happens. We have an explanation for the event, which gives rise to a feeling about the event, which gives rise to a behavioral response to the event. Event. Explanation. So, explanation. Feeling, feeling. Behavior. Okay. So you have a child who's saying, no, when it's time to work on math. No, it's stupid. If your explanation is that this is a power struggle, then my feeling, I I feel like this person's trying to take power from me, which gives rise to either a fight or a flight response. If my explanation of this behavior is that this child feels overwhelmed, insecure, afraid, I would hope that my feeling would be more compassionate and my behavioral response would reflect that. Which are mental health concerns, right? Right. Yeah. So... I think part of the hang-up is what does mental illness mean, right? Mm -hmm. And people think of the person mumbling to themselves walking down the street or suicidal depression, but it's it's a spectrum just like physical health. There's nobody who I know who's in perfect physical condition. And why can't the same be true with our mental health? You know, we all slide up and down that spectrum day to day based on things that happen. And it comes back to kids do well if they can. So if a person is having a behavior problem, I always say, like, nobody in their right mind does that. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do badly. Nobody wants to get in trouble. I'm kind of a stickler for words when they'll say, well, he likes to argue about everything or he wants to make other people annoyed. Really, does he want to? 
Or is he feeling compelled to do that due to some unresolved thing that's going on in his life? And that's what neuroscience research has shown over and over, is that our default setting is reflex. And that makes people uncomfortable, I think, because then how can I blame other people for stuff? So now my power is given up if I recognize that we're all reflexive creatures. Now that's our default setting. Through mindful practice, you can learn to recognize your reflexes and override them. So we're not doomed to stay that way. But, but that takes a lot of conscious choice and it practice. It does, right. Mm -hmm. And often it takes a lot of painful experiences to wake mm -hmm. us up to the reality that maybe we're not quite as in control mm -hmm. as we thought we were. going forward, I'm wondering if we can back up a little bit. You mentioned the trigger for you of people thinking you were dumb. And your book, Teddy Hit Me, which is a great title, by the way, Thank you. Um, covers reasons for this and the confirmed discovery of your own mental health challenges when you were in your 30s. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we can look at that. Sure. Because I think often when you are a therapist or you're, when you're working with people, the more that you can personally relate, the more effective you can be. 100%. Can you tell me about that experience? What happened for you that brought that to your attention in your 30s? What was the journey? So in terms of the diagnosis? Or yeah, like, what, what made you be okay. diagnosed at 30? So, and, what, and what did that do for you oh man. as an adult? How did that change? How did that shift things for you? Or did it? Oh, yeah. Like changed my life entirely, I would say. You were at a work conference on mental health, I believe. Yes. So um, it was with Dr. Gabor Mate, who mm -hmm. wrote Scattered Minds. And he had just written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts about addiction. And so it was all about attachment trauma and brain development and the need for comfort. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this explains everything. So I loved everything that he was saying. So, of course, I bought all of his books. And one of them was Scattered Minds, a book about ADD is what he called it when it was written. And I thought, oh, I think a lot of my clients probably deal with this. I, maybe it's a good way to get to know them. And so I started reading it and I was just like from the first pages, I was like, what the heck? This is my life. Like mm. there were lines in there that are things I've said many, many times to other people. Have I said like... What would be an example of that? So my wife one time, I was kind of like storming around the house and she said, you, you need to figure out what is stressing you out. I said, I know what is stressing me out. I'm stressing me out, but I can't get away from me is the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the things he talks about, you know, about being terrified of being left alone with your own mind and talks about reading a book in the bank lineup because he can't stand. And I was like, oh man, like... like reading a book in the bank lineup because he can't stand what? Being alone with his own thoughts. Mm. He can't... It's, 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 it's almost a visceral experience. The What you could describe as impatience would not fully capture the lived experience of standing in a lineup that you can't make go faster, mm. but you have to be in. And so you, so you just have to, have have to wait. Yeah, mm -hmm. you have an itch that cannot be scratched. And did you think everybody felt like that? Or had you not really thought about it in detail? I hadn't ever really thought about it. I mean, nobody had ever attached any kind of a, a label to me except depression. And that was just like a one-time comment when I was about 18, 19 years old. That when they said it, I was like, oh, that would actually explain a lot hmm. and they weren't wrong but the the underlying source still wasn't there so i so you're reading this book yeah. and and you're thinking oh my goodness this relates to me yeah so i'm like i have this is me so back then i was very anti-medication i was like oh medication just learn to think differently and plan and all that kind of stuff but it, it that didn't make any difference <laughs> for me mm. a big part of the treatment for adhd is knowing what that is. 
like knowing oh, what like oh that's why i do all that stuff mm. or don't do all that stuff mm. so that was a huge boon right off the top just understanding that what what is the that like when you say you understand that's why i don't do this that's why i don't do that mm-hmm. what what did that book tell you was the reason for that uh, not enough dopamine in the prefrontal cortex of my brain. Mm-hmm. It actually had nothing to do with my character mm-hmm. or my desire or will or any of that stuff that had always been attached to, laziness, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. It was, which later became very apparent when I started to take the medication. So what pushed me to actually be officially diagnosed was a client who'd been through the treatment center many, many times. He was in my uh, colleague's group at the time and it's just a classic case of ADHD, you know, legs bouncing all the time, talking all the time. He knew all the answers to all the questions. He could write out the plan with his eyes closed, but he could not follow through on any of it. And he could not stay clean for more than a month. He'd come in for three months in the program, leave, relapse almost right away, come back, do it again. And so his last time through, the counselor and I were, were pretty good friends and we're talking a lot about my ADHD realizations. And he's like, huh, I wonder if that's what's going on with him. And so we were actually able to get him to a psychiatrist who prescribed Dexedrine for him, ADHD medication, and totally different guy. Hmm. He graduated and stayed clean and stayed clean. And, and you know, last hmm. I heard, it had been seven years. And this is a guy who couldn't get 30 days. So what that medication was giving him was the dopamine hit to his brain that he needed. Yeah, that he kept finding in in crystal meth. Ted, do you have a general statistic of the population of how many people are affected by ADHD? I know it's a very broad term right now. It's a big spectrum term, but Mm -hmm. do you have numbers? Do you have stats that address? It's, It's incredible how widely varied prevalence estimates are for ADHD. Mm -hmm. I've never seen one that rates it at higher than 10%. Mm -hmm. But prevalence estimates are always difficult because it's based on people seeking help. So I tend to think that maybe all of those prevalence estimates are underestimates. I ask that because I think that, you know, in schools right now, we're hearing so much about the behavior problems, Mm -hmm. as we talked about before. and, and, And I think something resonates within us to know to feel like it's not always a choice, um, that it is perhaps a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at your child, for example, or your husband in your wife's case, Mm -hmm. you think, but I don't want to attribute mental health problem to this person because that doesn't fit the stereotype of what I think. But there's so much self-esteem, there's so much potential, there's Mm -hmm. so much capability that's lost with not being aware of the necessity of a dopamine hit to our brain. Yeah. Can you walk us through your growing up? What was school like for you? Um, so it's kind of like, you know, an athlete who's naturally athletic, they can get by on their talent, but when they get with other people who are also athletic, who work hard, then they kind of end up on the bench. Mm -hmm. So that was me in, in elementary school. I could kind of wing it. I was very creative. I didn't get in a ton of trouble. My report cards were always... You know, Ted could do a lot better if he would apply himself. He could be a great student if he would only be more organized. And a lot of last-minute projects with my dad was helping me finish. A lot of frustration, um, you know, foot in the mouth, saying the worst thing you could say. Oh, man, why did I say that? Those kinds of moments. Mm -hmm. But I had lots of friends and was pretty well-liked. And then when I I was going to grade 8, there was a big uptick in what's required of a student in terms of self-directedness, self-organization, self-regulation, essentially. So high school requires that. Yeah. Yeah. And elementary school, not so much. Mm -hmm. And so I really dropped off and was doing really badly in school. But nobody really thought anything of it because they could see that I was this smart kid. So I must just be lazy or not working hard or I was really depressed and so that persisted till the end of grade 12, mm. essentially. This underachievement. So um, what sort of things would your report card say? What were your teachers saying about you? It was a lot of the same stuff, just, you know, not organized, not handing stuff in, not paying attention, not applying himself, the classic one that 
99% of ADHD people have on their report mm -hmm. cards if they applied themselves or were less social, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And what were you thinking about yourself at that stage? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I just thought I was an idiot, an inevitable disappointment, I guess. A lot of people say, well, you know, I'm hardest on myself or I'm disappointing myself. I, I never felt like that because I didn't have expectations for myself. Mm -hmm. That's such a sad outlook on yourself. Yeah. You talk about there being symptoms of ADHD and symptoms because of ADHD. Is that kind of self-image a symptom? Yeah. Can, can you give the distinctions for each? Like, what are symptoms of ADHD? So things like getting bored really easily, even by things that were once interesting, starting really strong and kind of fading away, more big picture and not so much detail-oriented, so... I'm just sort of paraphrasing the, the checklist, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe we can put a link to that checklist or the list itself on our website. Yeah. So what are other symptoms of ADHD? Um, fidgetiness, difficult times, staying seated. Although with adults, for the most part, we've learned to stay in our seat. So mm -hmm. I'll ask them, how often do you feel like getting up? Mm -hmm. Oh, constantly. Okay, so we mm -hmm. check that box. A very specific kind of memory, difficulty in what's called working memory, which is remembering what you're supposed to be doing. So if you're doing a task and you're pulled away from it, can you go back to where you left and pick up where you left off? You know, I need you to do A, B, and C. They can maybe remember A, but the rest of it kind of gets blurry. And difficulty learning from mistakes. So a lot of repeated mistakes. Mm -hmm. you know, how, why do we keep having this conversation kind of stuff? Um, emotional up and down, mood swings. We also tend to hyper-focus on things that naturally produce dopamine in our brain. We do have a chronically low level of dopamine, which is a reward chemical, but our brain also doesn't regulate it very well. And so when something comes along that produces dopamine and you get locked into it and you just, boom, you know, sort of laser tractor beam focus. What would be examples of that? So as a musician, I had a little studio in my house and I would say to my wife, oh, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm just going to go down to my studio really quickly and just work on this, this chorus. There's this one thing I just have to record really quickly. And then she'd come down at four o'clock in the morning and say, uh, you have to be up in three hours. Do you think maybe you should come to bed? Oh, what time is it? Like it just no time had gone by. I, I felt refreshed as anything. Mm. You just get so engrossed in it that it's like there is no world around mm. you. Uh, whether it's reading books or playing video games or kids building Lego. And that's mm. one of the things actually that interferes with diagnosis sometimes is that they'll say, well, you can play video games. You can focus when he's playing video games or... Because that's giving the dopamine hit. Right. Okay. But that's where we come back to this idea of choice, right? Mm. They think, well, you can pay attention when you want to. Mm. It's not about wanting to. It's about whatever the activity is eliciting that from me, not me deciding to give it to the activity. Mm. And so those are the main symptoms. There's signs. Um, like external signs? Yeah. Symptoms that are more obvious to other people, right? Yeah, which is like the bouncing leg and the interrupting all the time, and difficulty waiting for your turn. And then there's symptoms which are more internal. So like a lot of racing thoughts and obsessive thinking. When I was diagnosed, the psychiatrist said, a lot of my symptoms were subjective. And at first I thought he meant like a matter of opinion, but then he meant only I experience them mm. because they're not obvious to the outside mm. world, which would explain a lot of why it took so long. So these are symptoms of ADHD. Before we look at symptoms because of ADHD, can I just ask you, you talked about getting bored. Yeah. Even with activities that were really interesting to you, mm -hmm. is that when you're bored, is that because you have have actually lost interest or is it because you can't maintain the interest? I guess for me, those are two different feelings. Mm. <clears throat> so, so dopamine's role, one of its many roles in your body is, is a reward chemical. And so if you have a chronically low level of it, 
then things that are rewarding for other people, let's say a nine out of 10 for you or a five out of 10. And so I use the, the phrase a lot, you know, it doesn't hit the spot. So there are lots of things that I am interested in and I want to try and learn about. But when I do them, it's kind of like eh, underwhelming. Mm. But I am genuinely interested in them. So that's probably what you call boredom, right? Is that things just don't do it for me. So you don't continue to pursue. Right. Yeah. There's no payoff for it. So it appears probably like you're starting a lot of things but not completing them. Right. And when Not you start, on. you're like all in. Like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the violin. And you watch a thousand videos on teaching yourself violin. And you go to all this research on buying violins. Yeah. And you pick up yeah. the violin and you can't make a note. And you're like, I'll oh, forget it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Mandolin. That's what I need. I need a mandolin. It's closer to a guitar. So, I, so you switch. So... It's hard to say that, that, you know, you're not interested or you're not motivated, but there just isn't a payoff for that interest and motivation. And so things kind of fade out quickly. Mm. Now, lack of focus, that can play a role too, because a lot of times something like playing the violin or learning to draw requires persistence and follow through before you get the payoff. Yeah. And if you don't have the ability to stick with it, you don't get the payoff. Even if there was a payoff at the end of the, the rainbow, you don't get to the end of the rainbow, so you never get to really experience it, which leads to a lot of learned helplessness. Like, what's the point in trying to do something because it's probably just going to disappoint you anyway? Okay, so that list you just gave are symptoms of mm-hmm. ADHD. Yeah. And when you're talking into learned helplessness, this yeah. becomes a symptom because of ADHD. So can you talk more about that? So learned helplessness was first studied with a rat. They put him in a container of water. He swims around the outside looking for an exit, but there is no exit. So they eventually just stop swimming and float to conserve their energy, survival behavior. So after a few trials of that, you take the rat and you put him in a container that does have an exit and they don't even look for the exit. They just float right away because the brain has learned in these situations, you can't get out. So don't try, conserve your energy. And so then what was an adaptive response becomes a maladaptive response. Now it's not helping you. And so in humans, what that looks like is I try to succeed and I don't, I try, I don't, I try, I don't. You know what? Why try? Why would I try? So like you just a, start floating. On, right. You just start floating. On mm-hmm. a purely survival level part of your brain, it is an adaptive strategy. Why would I waste precious energy pursuing something that can never be attained? when I can conserve that energy for other things that are attainable. The problem is it's built on a false premise, which is that failure is inevitable, when really it's just possible. Mm. And in some cases it might be likely, but it's not inevitable. So the brain then overgeneralizes, which is what everyone's brain does. That's what they're built for, jumping to conclusions and overgeneralizing to simplify the decision-making process. But for the people on the outside looking in, they're like, why wouldn't you even try it? It doesn't make any sense. You, you like swimming. Why wouldn't you want to go to swimming lessons or be on the swim team? Because that person's brain is saying, well, everyone thinks I'm good at it. But when I got in there, I know I wouldn't do well. And then I'd be embarrassed. So why would I go? I'm just signing up for embarrassment classes. I don't want to do that. But because the outside person doesn't share that perspective, it doesn't seem to make any sense why they're quitting. And it's a phrase I don't like, but self-sabotage, right? People shooting themselves in the foot. Can you give an example of that, that self-sabotage? Okay. Um, One SEA that I work with, she said, there's this little guy and he never does any work. And then one day we actually coaxed him into doing this math worksheet and he got them all right. And we're like, wow, see, you can do it. And he immediately ripped it up and threw it at me. Why would he do that? And I said, well, probably because he doesn't want you to expect that from him. He doesn't want you to think, oh, this is what's going to happen now. So he's got to lower your expectations again, not because he's lazy and doesn't want to do work, but because he doesn't believe it himself. So when you achieve success, your brain doesn't even really let you enjoy it because it's so terrified of what's coming next because I don't do well. So if I've done well, then that must mean something bad is coming Mm. around the corner, which of course it always is because that's part of being alive, right? Yeah, that's difficult and sad, though, being stuck in a limited and perhaps inaccurate belief system about yourself. Yeah. As a counselor, I deal a lot 
more, I would almost say, with the symptoms because of ADHD, which mm. are things like um, low self-esteem, depression, addictive behavior, aggressive behavior, self-harm, mm. some pretty disturbing statistics. Uh, kids that are not treated for their ADHD are... 700% more likely to have a substance abuse problem later in life. Mm. Uh, people with ADHD are eight and a half times more likely to self-harm in some form. So the way I view it is it's the individual's way to cope with the alienation that comes from the symptoms of mm. ADHD. That's why I call them symptoms because of ADHD. It's how I've learned to cope with the pain that comes from being the way that I am. And that pain actually comes from the people around me not knowing what to do with me, mm. not understanding me. And so the more people are educated about what's actually going on here, we reduce the need for that coping stuff. We're intervening way further upstream and not just trying to keep people from going over the waterfall. Mm. I've seen statistics that say probably 70% of people with ADHD have a comorbid anxiety disorder. Have a what? Uh, Comorbid, meaning occurring oh. at the same time. Mm. 70% is that's a lot. It is. And yeah, it's predictable. I mean, if you've dropped the ball a hundred times, it makes sense that you would anticipate dropping the ball. You expect to fail? Yeah. Your brain is just conditioned to expect the worst, right? Mm. And that, of course, starts to take its toll on your self-esteem and you start to feel like a loser and hopeless and here comes depression and I hate these feelings. Somebody passes me a joint. Oh, they went away. I'm going to keep doing that. And just these things start to feed on each other. Mm. Thanks for listening to Family 360 and our interview with family therapist and ADHD specialist, Ted Levitt. Our next episode is a popular repeat from our past with child psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Gordon Newfeld. This was our first interview with Dr. Newfeld, and it's fascinating as he describes his world-renowned work on attachment. Join us. And now back to our conversation with Ted Levitt as he describes the difference between validation and positivity when encouraging someone who has ADHD. I think right now, culturally, giving positive feedback, it is something that we do to encourage others. We say, I believe in you. I, I can see you can do this. I can see your potential. And I think what I'm hearing you saying is when you have ADHD, that's not actually helpful. When someone comes along yeah. and says, you've got so much potential, like that rat, start swimming. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It, like, because uh, what does that do to you? It just feels like pressure that I, I will inevitably not meet your expectations. Again, this is where that frame of reference pops up because now when I do well on an assignment, I think, oh, it's because he likes me. Not because mm. I did well on the assignment, right? Because mm. the, the brain has a quick way of putting things back to our baseline state of beliefs. You talk about mindful encouragement. Mm -hmm. The necessity for mindful encouragement when you're working with someone with ADHD or living with somebody with ADHD. So the, the mindful encouragement really is about leading with validation, saying, I know this might be hard for you to accept, or I know that you might have a hard time recognizing why I might think this about you. So we encourage the ADHD person in our reactions to their reactions, not so much in coaching them on what to do and to try hard, but when they fail, absorbing that failure. Can you give an example? Like you're talking about there's a difference between validation and positivity. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, can you give us an example even from perhaps your married life? Because those are fuzzy lines to me. Yeah, I guess how a validation and positivity would look different would be like saying, well, you know, I have to give this talk and I'm going to do terrible at it. Instead of just sort of saying, no, you're talking about, you're going to be great. It's like, well, you might, you might do terrible at it. I mean, you do have some of those experiences in your life that have taught you that you're going to do terrible at it, but you also have experiences where you've done fantastic. Because this idea that I'm going to inevitably fail is not built on imagination. It's built on actual experiences of failure mm. or setback. So to ignore that and say, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. Now they know you're not telling the truth. Mm. Because these are demonstrable, tangible things that I have messed up on to say, no, no, you're fine. No, like I have messed up. So 
I would come at it like that. So sometimes, you know, a kid will say to the parent, I feel like I'm such a burden. I make your life so much harder. And the parent's like, no, you don't. You're not a burden. I'm like, well, they kind of are. But they are a burden gladly borne, right? We're willing to carry heavy things because it's worth it. And it doesn't make me care about you any less. Rather than denying the reality that it is harder to parent you than your non-ADHD sibling because I don't have to email their teachers twice a week to find out how much homework you're missing. I don't have to argue with them about every little thing. So to deny what is obvious becomes not a genuine relationship. Hmm. So if someone says, I'm afraid I'm going to forget, we say, okay, well, what can we do to help you not forget? So that's the difference between validation and this blind positivity. You're going to do great. You have it in you to do great, but we might need to get a plan built around you to help you do great. And if you don't do great, who cares? It doesn't mean anything about who you are as a person. It's just another experience that we, we chalk up. My son likes his band, AJR, and they have a song called 100 Bad Days. And the chorus is, 100 bad days makes 100 good stories, and 100 good stories makes me interesting at parties, which is kind of how I frame it with my kids. I'm like, hey, it's going to be a good story one day to the point where they're now excited to come home from school. Like, oh man, you wouldn't believe this ADHD thing I did today where I forgot this and then I blurted this thing out and it's not like a source of shame for them. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest symptom because of ADHD is the shame. Hmm. The feeling of I'm less than other people. I don't have the capacity, the abilities that other people do. I'm less likable than other people. And so all of the things that arise from that, depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, risky behavior, all of those are coming generally from the need for approval, for belonging, or soothing the pain of not belonging, soothing the pain of alienation in one way or another, whether it's being the class clown to get attention or it's using heroin because it provides endorphins to my brain, which I should be getting from loving relationships. Mm -hmm. Since those don't seem to be an option for me, then maybe I'll just use these other ones, uh, this synthetic mm -hmm. form of relationship. I've heard you talk about the important distinction between capability and capacity. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, does that tie into what you're talking about right there? Yeah, absolutely. The analogy I use a lot is let's say you walk into a gym and you see this person hit a half court basketball shot. Is it safe to assume that they can always hit that shot? No. I mean, that's a ridiculous shot. It's usually luck. And if they did hit it, they probably shot 50 misses before they hit it. Now that they've hit it, is it safe to say, also, oh, you can do it. I know that you have it in you. So do they have the capability to hit that shot? Yeah, apparently they just did it. But do they have the capacity to always hit that shot? on demand when you want them to, or even when they want to? No. A whole bunch of things have to come together at the same time for that capability to be turned into capacity. So that's a big difference, hmm. whether it's adults or kids. We might pull it off one time and then people say, ah, see, you can do it. I knew you could do it. I knew you had it in you, but it's framed as if you've been holding out on me. That's a big difference. Yeah. And you can see how that is so confusing for teachers or for caregivers. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it's under that perception of choice right. that you're making a decision to do something or not. Right. I think the whole conversation around to medicate or not to medicate mm -hmm. is a really challenging one for parents once they know their child does have ADHD and their behaviors are not merely choice. Where do you land on that? Well, I, as I said, I was not a medication person until I saw it work a miracle in this guy's life. And my experience with my adult clients, I would say I have never had an adult client who's diagnosed as an adult and started medication come back to me and say anything other than, this is amazing. I cannot believe how well my brain works. I can't believe that I'm now doing stuff that I always wanted to do, but could never quite do. It's a bit different with kids, partly because the part of their brain that recognizes how am I doing isn't really well developed yet. Mm. And so you ask a kid, how does it feel? I don't feel anything. But outwardly, it's very different. Mm. They're doing their homework or they're fighting less with their brothers and sisters or they're not bouncing around driving everyone crazy, but they don't have the ability to be subjective about it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are 
afraid of medication, but really what they're afraid of is misinformation. And so it kind of sounds bad to say it until you understand what's behind it, that the easiest way to diagnose someone with ADHD is to give them ADHD medication and see what happens. Because it happens quickly, doesn't it? Like if it's going to do anything for you, it's going to do it in about 20 minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't have ADHD and you don't have a dopamine deficit and you take that medication, you're high on speed. And so all of the stuff that looked like ADHD will probably get worse mm. if you give that person medication. The good thing is it gets worse for six hours and then the medication's out of their system and now we know. It looks a lot like ADHD, but it's not. Otherwise it would have responded differently to the medication. Mm -hmm. Whereas for myself, within half an hour of taking the medication, it's like someone's turned on the defog on my windshield and now I can see where I'm going. And it was probably a couple of weeks after I started taking medication, I called my wife from work and I said, I don't think this is working anymore. And she said, why not? I said, I just was so bored today. Like I just want to lock my office door and watch YouTube all day. And, but I can't even do that because I can't even finish one video. And she's like, yeah, you actually didn't take it today. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I did. She said, no, I found it on the counter next to your cereal bowl. I'm like, oh, so it does work. And then I thought, how did I live like this? for 33 years. Well, and that's part of the question, isn't it? So when a parent comes to you and says, so my child's been diagnosed with ADHD. I'm afraid of medicating them. Mm -hmm. What would be your response? Well, I find the best response in those situations is to ask a lot of questions. So what is it that you're afraid of? Where did you get your information from? So they say, I'm afraid of putting chemicals into my child's body. I'm afraid of altering the personality of who they mm -hmm. really are. Right. I'm afraid of them feeling labeled that they have to be medicated. Okay. So let's start with the label. Oh, I don't want them to have a label. I said, well, they already have a label and it's just going to get worse. Right now it's rowdy kid or loud kid, but eventually it's going to become idiot, bad kid. So you can't escape a label. We may as well have it be accurate. Mm. In terms of uh, what if it totally changes his personality? Okay, well then stop taking it. It's mm. that simple. You have to balance side effects with main effects. I don't really experience any side effects from my medication. It doesn't suppress my appetite. It doesn't keep me up at night, but other people do. And so sometimes they have to decide, is the improvement in productivity worth the other stuff? And sometimes the answer is no. And there's different kinds of medications and different potencies. Right. The so rule is start low, go slow. Mm -hmm. So whatever medication you start with, start with the minimum dose, for maybe a week or two, then bump it up if you need to. If you don't, if that lowest dose was enough, okay, stay there. If it's totally zombied your child, as in the early days of Ritalin, if that's happening, it's either the wrong medication or the wrong dose. Mm -hmm. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And in terms of putting chemicals into our children's bodies, for people who want to go the natural route, I mean, it's a totally unregulated field. Just because it says natural on the label doesn't mean that it is. Like the organics. Yeah, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. In medicine, if a treatment is not effective or if it's not safe, it does not last in medicine. And we've been treating ADHD with stimulants since the 30s. So it has stood the test of time. And when people say, well, we don't know what the long-term effects are, we actually do know what the long-term effects are because they've been doing longitudinal studies on kids taking medication into adulthood for decades now and there aren't really any serious, yeah. if any, long-term adverse effects. But the long-term effects are positive in terms of self-esteem and opportunity. And so what I say to parents who are hesitant, I say, well, you should be hesitant, of course, instead of just rushing into it. But after you've tried everything you're comfortable with, you might have to try something you're not comfortable with and see if that helps too. I think part of the wrestling with this falls back into what we were talking about, the difference between behavior problems and mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And I've heard the analogy before that if your child has diabetes, of course, you're going to give them insulin mm -hmm. without a second thought because you know 
that that is a medical diagnosis. And I think that still in this area of ADHD, we still can think of it as a behavior problem and not see it as a health problem that requires a medication. I know for myself as a parent, that approach was helpful for me to say, this is the difference between my child's success and life. Right. So my approach as a counselor is very psychoeducational. You know, it's informed by philosophy and theories and things like that. But the reality is 99% of people don't know what dopamine does in their brain. They don't know what a prefrontal cortex is or reticular activating system or any of these kinds of things that are not functioning normally in the ADHD brain. So I find that the more education they have about the mechanics of paying attention, it becomes easier for people to go, oh, okay. So again, that's coming back to when someone has concerns, I'm always going to be asking them questions first before I start answering questions because I have to assess what do they know. And most of them have very, very little awareness. And that goes with the teachers and other people that are involved with them. So always coming back to educating This is what it is, this is what it isn't, so that you know why that intervention that you keep trying isn't working. It's not because they don't want it to work, it's because you're pressing the wrong button. If you've got a loud ticking noise under the hood in your car, putting more air in the tires is probably not gonna be helpful, but that doesn't mean it's a stupid car. Hmm. So education about the science that's underlying it is to me the, the absolute key and the starting point with medication. So Ted, as we start to wrap up this interview, Can I put this to you as a closing Mm -hmm. question? If we are wondering if our child or even if we ourselves might have ADHD, where do you start practically and where do you start emotionally? Hmm. Yeah, probably the emotionally comes first because Mm -hmm. if you have a lot of uh, unpleasant emotions, I won't say negative, but unpleasant emotions about it, it puts a stopper in what are the next practical steps because mm-hmm. the practical steps are actually fairly simple. You go to your doctor. If they're uncomfortable assessing or diagnosing, you get a referral to a pediatrician. I'd highly recommend that you find a pediatrician who actually specializes in it. And if, if you see a long wait list, you're like, oh man, it's going to be a year. Yeah, get on the wait list because that's might be your only option. You really do have to be a self-advocate and self-educate. Which is hard when you've got ADHD. Which is hard. Although <laughs> yeah. you can hyper-focus and just become like an expert. So the, the practical side of what to do is actually not that complex. The emotional side, we come back to that, the EEFB that we talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. like, so what does this mean to me? So your child has ADHD, okay. What is your explanation for that? Does that mean that you did something wrong, that you wrecked them, that your child's defective, that you're defective, that their future is over already? Okay, what are these explanations that I have? Because that's giving rise to my feelings about it which will give rise to my behavioral response. So my emotional reaction to the diagnosis or the label or the medication tells me what I think of the label and what it means. Now I have to explore, where did I come by that meaning? Was it given to me by other people? Is it accurate? Because if it's not, then maybe I need to shift my belief or definition, which will lead to a different feeling. A lot of times parents that I work with will feel guilt, particularly if the kid's older, a teenager. They're just like, oh man, how did we not see this? Mm -hmm. You know, and they feel bad that they look at it as they did this to their Mm -hmm. child. It's like, well, it it doesn't matter whether you did or not. We can do something about it. So let's start now. You didn't know then what you know now. So now is when your accountability begins, essentially. Mm -hmm. So... I hope that answers your question. I think it's a great answer. And I thank you so much for sharing your own story, because I think hearing it in that first person point of view is so meaningful. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Rachel, at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that you have some family and friends with ADHD. Mm -hmm. Did this interview resonate with you in a unique way? Yeah, well, it did. Like Ted, my husband, Dan, was diagnosed as an adult after our first three children were in their teens. And was his discovery like Ted's? It it was. It was life-changing for him, especially Hmm. once he went on medication. He actually used the phrase, it was like pending doom was lifted from over his head, Hmm. which is sad. It is. 
it really comes back to that discussion we had with Ted about problem behaviors versus mental health problems. That the wiring and firing uh, of our brain... affects everything. It affects everything. And that's why conversations like this one with Ted are so important. It can be a pretty alienating journey without that kind of knowledge and support. Sure can. So thank you, Ted Levitt. Thank you. Each Family 360 episode ends with music inspired by the words of our guest. You heard bits and pieces of this music during this interview. Here's the song, Teddy Hit Me. And you can find it in our resource section for every episode or wherever you stream music. I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmond. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360.